Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jerry Krasnick. Jerry is a senior writer for ESPN and the author of the book, License to Deal, a season on the run with a maverick baseball agent. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jay Krasnick. Jerry, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, Ross. How are you? I'm great. I ask everyone this right at the top, so I want to ask you as well. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I'm a native New Englander, so I grew up and uh, was weaned on the Red Sox in the mid-60s. You know, I think they finished eighth in 1966. They were kind of a big loser. And then when uh, Crowley Ostromsky and the Impossible Dream Red Sox came around in 1967, uh, my dad took me down to Fenway. Uh, I was smitten after that. So... uh, you know, baseball was just a great sport. We used to listen to it as a family on the radio out on the front porch, and it really was a big part of my uh, boyhood growing up. Now, 1967 is a big year in the lore of Red Sox. That's really like the birth of Red Sox Nation. Did you know at that time as a kid you were witnessing something special? Not really. You know, back then it was funny. that Fenway, I think, the Red Sox used to draw like a million fans a season, and uh I went to Boston University uh, in the mid-70s, and I was lucky. Um, you know, I got a seat for Carly Ostromsky's 3,000th head and actually was at the Bucky Dent game uh, in the bleachers. You, you can imagine now trying to get a ticket for something like that, but when the playoff came, one of my uh, guys on my floor went down and got tickets for it. So it was pretty extraordinary to be in Boston and be able to go to these games just because back then it wasn't as much of a cultural phenomenon and the, and there were more empty seats so you could actually get access to some of the games. You've been covering baseball for a long time. You've been a beat reporter in different markets. You've been a national writer. Tell me how you've seen the game change and just how you've seen covering baseball change in that time. Yeah, well, it's two different questions, obviously. You know, the coverage has changed um, a lot because of social media and you know, when I started in the late 80s in Cincinnati, you know, the Internet wasn't even a thing. So, you know, the immediacy, uh, it's it's been good in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of information sharing and enlightenment that we've garnered through the, you know, advent of uh, more advanced statistics and metrics. There's some really smart people and some really great young writers covering it now. Uh, I think, on the other hand, you do have a lot of uh, knee-jerk reaction kind of reporting and, and some of that stuff, which I don't find quite as appealing. You know, there's a lot more rumor-mongering 24 hours a day, and it's made the off-season a little bit uh, less pleasant. Um, obviously, the game on the field has changed. You know, we went through uh, <clears throat> the steroid era, which w- was pretty crazy. And even at the time, you know, I think a lot of us were conflicted about how much to write about this and criticize it because everybody was on board with the McGuire Sosa home run chase and everyone was all euphoric about it. And even to some of us who thought it was, you know, not natural for guys to be hitting 65 and 70 home runs with regularity, uh, it's kind of hard to go call people out just based on how they look from one year to the next. And, so, you know, I think that was a conflict that a lot of us dealt with. And, um, you know, we've had new ballparks come in, obviously. 
that was a big craze. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing, though, I, I think um, to people who love the game is we, we just love the uh, sort of cerebral nature of it. I've always found baseball is a sport that um, is more conducive to good writing than other sports. You know, I've covered hockey and done a little football and basketball and I just think the examination that can go into a baseball game with a building of a roster, uh, there's just so much ground for, for uh, thought and, and so much good uh, opportunity to write human nature kind of pieces that I, I just find it has a, more of a romantic feel to it. And I've just always felt like uh, I was fortunate to be a baseball writer. Obviously, you have the benefit of hindsight and now 20 years of, of built-up information. But if you could go back to the time during the peak of the steroid era, would you have covered anything differently? Would you have done anything differently? You know, some of us did try. I mean, I know there were people, Bob Nightingale, I remember, wrote some pieces. And, um, you know, I, I wrote, I remember when I was in Denver, I wrote a piece about creatine at the time and how that was the new phenomenon. And sitting down with Ken Caminiti and sort of asking him because there were rumors about him and, you know, guys obfuscated at the time. They didn't really say much. And, uh, I think there could have been some more critical writing, but it was difficult. You know, it's hard. I think everybody says, Hey, you know, we should have called these guys out, but what do you say? You know, this guy looks big or this guy, this you're, you're dealing with people's reputations. You're, you're really, uh, you know, attacking them on a personal level and to do it just on the way a guy base, you know, looks in uniform or, or he's hitting more home runs. I, I wasn't always comfortable with that. So yeah, I'm sure there were, all of us could have been better at it, but you know, the media certainly bears its share of blame, but I do think the people who ran baseball at the time, you know, the, commissioner's office and the union, which sort of blocked a lot of things and the players who didn't speak up, you know, I think the, the majority of blame lies with them. Um, and certainly we could have been better watchdogs about it, but I, I guess I just don't think it was quite as easy as coming out and writing columns all the time saying, these guys are all on steroids. Don't believe anything you see. Uh, I'm not sure how well that would have flown at the time. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that's, that's fair either in the sense that a lot of people think that the steroid users are cheaters and their numbers don't count at all. And I get that, but I also am kind of like, well, they happened. The, you know, Barry Bond still had those seasons and Roger Clemens still had those seasons and we all rooted for them and cheered for them. I don't think we can just pretend like they didn't happen either. And I think that that's one of the things that's happening with the Hall of Fame somewhat. It happens a little bit now where I actually think Barry Bonds has become underrated, where we're discarding too much of their career, even though those numbers, well, they might have got a boost. They certainly did. They still happened. They happened in Major League Baseball. The commissioner was there. He's now in the Hall of Fame. GMs were scouting steroid use, apparently. That was just a part of the culture of the game. I don't think we can discredit them entirely for their accomplishments either. Yeah, and look, I think also we make it sound like the guys in the 40s and 50s and, you know, were so pure. Well, they didn't use steroids. Well, they didn't because they weren't available. You know, they used, guys used amphetamines and, um, you know, there, were, there was obviously the era of, segregation in baseball and 
Um, you know, there were a lot of things that have happened, just like with America. You know, baseball has had different um, eras, and, and uh, you know, the steroid era is one that we can lament, but as you said, I don't think we can ignore it and pretend it didn't happen, and that's where I think you get into this uh, whole debate over whether, look, is the Hall of Fame a museum or is it some shrine to purity, you know, and uh, I think more of us are coming to grips with the, with saying, look, this was a, an unsavory era in baseball, none of us feel good about it, but if we're going to be letting in guys that maybe we suspect might have used something, then where do we draw the line, and that's something that a lot of writers are grappling with. Well, last year you had made the switch, last year was the first year you had voted for Bonds and Clemens, what went into that decision process? I've said a lot that I think there are three schools of writers. You know, there's the old school writer who says, hey, I'm going to be rigid about this. I'm not going to vote for anybody that used any steroids or anything. Um, Then there's the group that says, look, I can't be a detective. I'm just going to go on the numbers. Uh, I can't really read a guy's mind, and I can't go behind the scenes and know who did and who didn't. So I'm just going to vote on the numbers. And I was always sort of in the middle. I tried to take it on a case-by-case basis, but I felt like it it reached a point where I was being kind of hypocritical. I I think I was voting for guys that I really did think did something, but maybe they didn't flunk a test or maybe they didn't um, uh, interact with the wrong trainer or the wrong person who might blow the whistle on them. or You know, there were so many different shades of gray that I got tired of really sorting through them. And I honestly felt like Bonds and Clemens, even though I don't condone for a second what they did, uh, were two of the greatest players in baseball history. And it just didn't feel like, um, felt like we were going to get to a point where a lot of the best players in baseball history weren't going to be in the hall and a big chunk of baseball history would be missing. So uh, I made an exception for those two guys. Uh, I know they probably did some things they shouldn't have. Uh, they came in, you know, they happened before the era of testing where they didn't flunk tests. So I vote for, voted for them. And, you know, this year Pudge Rodriguez is on the ballot, and he's a guy that people have questions about. And, you know, Bagwell has been dogged by some whispers. And I, I voted for some of these guys. I voted for Piazza last year. Um, I'm really trying to sort of, uh, wave through this thicket of uncertainty uh, with the hall voting, and it's complicated by the fact that you only have 10 spots on the ballot, which makes it difficult, too, and it, it's become a very difficult time to be a Hall of Fame voter. Yeah, one of the things that I think the hall does well is that once you're in the Hall of Fame, they make no distinction as to how you got there. When you're in, you're in. So it makes no sense that they have this 10-slot limit. If someone thinks that 15 players are on the ballot are deserving, why can't they vote for that many? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit with their whole policy as a museum. Yeah, that's one thing I don't like, and I think there are other writers who don't like it, because I'm, I'm not a huge hall guy, but I'm certainly not one of these small hall guys. I, I see people who vote for three or four players. And, you know, I just think the whole era, baseball's really acknowledged this, the whole era is underrepresented. You know, we have almost twice as many teams. We used to have 16, now we have 30. Um, and we've been very selective, you know, and, and it's fine to be selective, but there are different levels of Hall of Famers. Not everybody can be Willie Mays or Hank Aaron. So, uh, you know, uh, 
I think we've become a little bit more um, expansive in the last few years. And, you know, this year we might have three or four more guys enter. Uh, I think it's a good thing. You know, the Hall of Fame, um, again, to me, I understand people who want to have the elite of the elite there. But when you get to a point where you're not having inductions and, you know, you're having one guy every other year, uh, I think that is going extremely in the other direction. And to me, the Hall of Fame still means more than any of the other Hall of Fames. Um, you know, people who lash out at the Hall of Fame now and say, oh, the Hall of Fame's a joke or this or that. It's not a joke. I mean, everybody takes the Baseball Hall of Fame much more seriously than the other ones. And I think the baseball writers in their stewardship of, you know, maybe they've been a little bit too selective, but if that's the biggest sin, I, I don't think that's such a bad thing. Yeah, here's a number from my friend Adam Dewarski. Percentage of plate appearances by a Hall of Famer from 1871 to 1969. That percentage is 13%. 13% of plate appearances for much of baseball history uh, were done by Hall of Famers. From 1970 to 2000, it's 6.9%, about half as much. That's not a good number. You want to keep up with expansion, and that's something the writers haven't done. So people who are concerned with diluting talent, they're diluting the hall or the honor, whatever they want to say, it just hasn't kept up with expansion. And part of that is PED-related, but really, it's part of it is just we need to start putting in guys who are borderline and not just think that the Hall of Fame is for Willie Mays. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I think it's even been worse for pitchers. You really look at pitchers, and we went, you know, a long, long time before we got Maddox and Glavin and those guys and Smoltz in. And now that's why, you know, there are people who are on the fence about, say, Kurt Schilling or Mike Messina. I mean, I think those guys are Hall of Fame worthy as well. So, uh, you know, that during that steroid era, numbers were pretty crazy and pitchers suffered. And I think we have to look at that and take that into account as we assess the candidates of some, uh, the candidacies of some of these guys. Well, let's talk about Kurt Schilling for a little bit. Schilling is a very interesting guy this year. He had a very good piece about him up on ESPN.com last week. Schilling is losing votes, and he's losing votes because of his political views. He's losing votes because he retweeted a comment or a T-shirt of some guy basically calling for the lynching of journalists. And he's losing votes because of these things. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, as you saw, I wrote a story about it last week, and I, I, I tried to be really sort of even-handed about this thing and take a big-picture look at it. Um, I think most people appreciated that. I, I didn't really want to, you know, opine on it myself, uh, but I have voted for Kurt Schilling, and look, I, I'm not a proponent or an advocate of some of the things he's done. I think he's his own worst enemy. You know, he can't resist the temptation to share an opinion on everything <laughs> on social media uh, immediately. He, he does tend to come off as very belligerent and combative and dismissive of opinions of people who disagree with him. Uh, that being said, this stuff is 10 years after he last threw a pitch, number one. Um, and actually, I included it in the piece. Kurt Schilling won every major award the uh, character award you could win when he was a player. Uh, he won the Roberto Clemente Award. He won the um, the Hotch Award for Courage. He won the uh, a Lou Gehrig Award. He won a Babe Ruth Award. He won the Branch Rickey Award for Community Service. 
I mean, this guy won every single award you could win. Um, he used to go visit the troops. He raised money for ALS. You know, I think Kurt, Kurt has let his politics obviously uh, uh, sort of drive him a little bit. And, uh, you know, he's carved out this new persona. Um, and it hasn't helped him in the Hall of Fame voting. But from my standpoint, at least, I don't really think that's fair. You know, if uh, and I do think there is a bit of a double standard because he obviously is very extremely conservative and very right wing and a lot of writers are probably more liberal. I, I do think in this case, though, I mean, I wound up talking to like 50 different writers or more on this thing. Most of them said it wasn't his politics. But I think he is losing votes to this tweet that he put out there, uh, which basically laughed at and applauded a, a T-shirt uh, that endorsed the lynching of journalists. And it was at the very least in bad taste and it was poor humor and at worst, it, it just didn't come off well. And this is a case where just keep your mouth shut. You know, you're not doing yourself any good. And um, I don't, I just think it was stupid and I wouldn't not vote for him for the Hall of Fame because of it. But it is hurting him. You know, I think there might be 15, 20, 30 people, you know, who might not vote for him for this thing, at least for one year. And, uh, you know, he's at a point where, he can't afford to backslide and he's lost some support because of it. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake. And I actually think this does not reflect well on the writers. I'm someone that thinks the character clause is unnecessary to begin with. There are all kinds of scoundrels off the field in the hall of fame. There were members of the Ku Klux Klan, past members of the Ku Klux Klan who are in the hall of fame. There were also players who cheated every way they could. They may not have had access to steroids, but they had amphetamines. They scuffed balls. There are all kinds of cheaters in the hall of fame as well. So I don't think it should exist at all. However, it does exist. But Jeff Idelson has even said, I've heard an interview with him on MLB Network, where he was saying it's only meant for on-field considerations. So to take off-field considerations, and even in this particular case, Twitter feeds or Twitter comments, what he says, I, I think it makes the writers look bad. I think it's really the, and Dan Shaughnessy wrote this in one of his columns, it is the the tweet he had about journalists that's that's crushing him here. He lost a little bit of support last year because of his political views as well, even though he had a huge surge up. I think there were seven ballots that did not vote for him last year, that voted for him the previous year, that still had room, that did not max out their 10, which tells me even last year some of his political views cost him. And it's not going to get any better with him. He's not going to tone it down. He's going to continue to say outrageous things at times and offensive things at times. But he's still one of the best pitchers ever to play the game. And I think that's what we should be focusing on here. No, I agree with you. Look, as I said, um, I pointed out in my piece, you know, Tim Raines is a guy this year who's sort of a darling. And, you know, rightfully so, he's going to get in. But Tim Raines did use cocaine when he played. And, you know, I don't know if it was an addiction. He, he just, he, you know, I think that was a pretty big transgression. Paul Molitor, you know, these guys did something took an illegal drug and were using it at the time when they played and people overlooked that. Um, and I, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, Tim Raines back in the early eighties, the go, go eighties or whatever guys were doing that. And he got over it and he had a long and distinguished career. And I'm going to vote for Tim Raines for the hall of fame. Um, Kurt Schilling didn't, didn't do anything to embarrass his uniform to, uh, disgrace his team. You know, he didn't have any DUIs. He didn't have any kind of off-field issues. 
And now, 10 years later, people are sick of him, you know, listening to him, and they're going to not vote for him based on that. Um, I don't really agree with that. You know, to me, I vote for him on the basis of what he did on the field. And frankly, I'm, I'm as baffled by the fact that, you know, here's a guy who I think had the best strikeout to walk ratio of any pitcher uh, since 1900. Um, had like 3,100 strikeouts and 700 walks. Uh, you know, he's one of 15 pitches with 3,100 strikeouts. He may be the best postseason pitcher in history. And, you know, I think people are selling him short because he only had 216 wins. And we know now that wins are, you know, more a function of uh, circumstance, you know, your bullpen or your run support or that kind of thing. Um, I just think he and Mucina are both getting sold short in that respect. And, you know, you couple the fact that he's a borderline guy with some of his offensive social media activity and people aren't voting for him. And, and frankly, I think the rule of 10 is getting tougher now because, as you've seen with Bud Steele getting in and Tony LaRusso getting in, people are starting to say, well, why should I keep Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens out? So that's something that's hurting the guys like Kurt Schilling because those guys and Manny Ramirez and Sheffield and these guys are going to get more support. So it's kind of a perfect storm right now that's weighing against Kurt Schilling. Yeah, I think that the bud going in and that influencing some people on Bonds and Clemens is hurting Hoffman a little bit, too. I think Hoffman was the 10th guy on a lot of ballots. And if people are now deciding to vote for Bagwell or vote for Bagwell or Bonds or Clemens or Manny, I think Hoffman's one of those guys that's losing some space. So he may not get in this year and he may be stuck at a high percentage for a couple of years here. Yeah, and you also have, I think, what, next year will be Chipper and Jim Tomey are getting close. So those are guys, you know, that's the problem you have. And, um, I've said this to people, you know, I know Jeff Kent might not be the most popular guy on Hall of Fame ballots. I think Jeff Kent's a Hall of Famer. I mean, I really do want to vote for him. He's arguably, you know, one of the best second base offensive players in history. And I think sometimes the defensive metrics hurt him a little bit unfairly. Uh, I want to vote for him, but I can't. You know, I'm just, uh, I get to the point where I probably would vote for 14 or 15 guys but they haven't given us the latitude to. And unfortunately, as writers, we have to operate within the framework of what we're given. What are your thoughts on Bud Seeley going in? And do you think that decision should affect how people view the steroid players? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Bud Seeley's influence was profound. I think a lot of great things did happen during his run. I think the timing of this, you know, with him sailing in so quickly, uh, that bothered me a little bit. I mean, I don't know whether it would have hurt to give it a little bit of time to percolate, you know, and maybe look at his, uh, uh, give a little time to sort of uh, provide some clarity maybe on exactly what he achieved. It just seemed like the thing was rammed through so quickly. And I'm one of these guys who does have a huge problem with uh, Marvin Miller not being in the Hall of Fame and, and Bud Selig being in the Hall of Fame. Look, I think... Uh, I think the baseball establishment, you know, doesn't like Marvin Miller because players make a lot more money now because of Marvin Miller. But it's a $10 billion industry, and we have a lot of parity, I think, in terms of, you know, teams getting and winning the postseason. It's a lot better than in football. I think baseball is in a pretty good spot, and all of this stuff happened with Marvin Miller 
in the early 70s, and he can't get in because, you know, there are ownership people who have, frankly, uh, you know, blocked or, or uh, you know, stonewalled him getting into the Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm outraged by that, and I think people should be. He's a huge figure in baseball history. You know, he's up there really with the Jackie Robinsons and the Branch Rickies and people as a seminal figure in baseball history. And uh, if you're going to let in non-players and people who had an influence, he belongs in. So, uh, you know, that I'm not particularly happy about. I I do think Bud Selig belongs in the Hall of Fame. I think his influence was that profound. He does have these blots on his resume. Uh, But if you're going to use that theory, then you have to say, well, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are overwhelmingly positive, and they have – blots on their resumes, so how can we keep them out if we let Bud seal again? I agree with that. And I think if we were to redo the Hall of Fame, if we were to start over and repopulate, I think not including executives is a good idea. I think a players-only hall would be a much better Hall of Fame just right there that we even spend any time on managers, executives, commissioners, umpires. Let's fill the Hall of Fame with players, and I don't think it would lose any interest whatsoever. No, I can see that. I mean, I can see why people feel that way. I do feel like, uh, I, I do think that it's great to honor some of these guys, you know, some of these great managers and, and people who've done things, but it just seems a little bit arbitrary when you're starting to look at executives or managers or people like that. Um, you know, whatever we do to let certain people in, it's always going to be the players hall. And I think that's going to be the thing that's going to elicit the the most uh, passionate arguments, pro and con. Last year, you filled your ballot. You used all 10 slots. You voted for Bagwell, Bonds, Clemens, Griffey, Hoffman, Edgar Martinez, Mucina, Piazza, Reigns, and Schilling. Eight of those guys are still on the ballot this year. Obviously, Griffey and Piazza got in last year. Are you voting for the same eight again? Will those eight still get your vote? Yeah, I mean, my, they're not due until the 31st. I think I probably will. I don't really have any reason to change my mind. So, um, you know, that leaves me with two other spots. And um, right now, again, this isn't official because I haven't uh, sat down with it and really marked the names, but um, I have a hard time not seeing Vladimir Guerrero as a Hall of Famer. I did a cursory look at his uh, resume and it's pretty darn depressive. And and I just think Pudge Rodriguez, if you're going to vote for Piazza, uh, Pudge Rodriguez is one of the you know, handful of greatest catchers in history. So to me, those are a couple natural guys. Um, but again, I, you know, I find that I look through the ballot and I say, geez, I wish I could vote for Jeff Ken or Gary Sheffield or give Larry Walker more serious consideration. Or, you know, there's a lot of guys. I just find that um, maybe I'm being not as stringent as I should, or my standards are too low, but uh I think we got a lot of guys that uh, the constraints of this 10-man ballot is really making it difficult for me. I agree. I'd put Kent in too, but it's hard. I, I think I'd rank him like 14th of the guys on the ballot, 14th or 15th. So it's hard for me to, it's impossible for me if I had a 10-person ballot to get him on there. Yeah, it's tough. I, I just find uh, that's why I'm baffled a little bit. But I, you know, look, I'm not one of these guys who, uh, you know, we have this um, uh, habit now where, people post their ballots and everybody goes on Twitter and says, this is a good ballot or, you know, this is a lousy ballot. Uh, 
I tend to have more respect for individuals and individual opinions. You know, what, do we really want this homogenized thing where everybody has the perfect ballot and everybody thinks the same? You know, there should be room for debate. Uh, I'm puzzled, I guess, when I see people who pick three guys, you know, out of ten. Um, but they're small hall guys. They just don't think. I think that's just a philosophical difference where they don't think that you know, you should have the borderline guys. You just need the elite of the elite, uh, which is great. But then again, you have these ceremonies where you might have one guy every other year. So is that really what we want the Hall of Fame to be? No, and the Hall of Fame would be out of business if the small hall people had their way. Ultimately, the Hall of Fame, for any Hall of Fame, for them to thrive and flourish needs a steady flow of players going in. No, I agree. You know, I just think that you have to find this balance and between the, the steroid era, uh, you know, the 10-man uh, the ballot, uh, a lot of these different factors, we've gone through some, some rough times. Uh, you know, the one thing I think people have to realize, though, because we do get criticized as baseball writers, uh, and I, I think they did a good job last year in sort of updating it um, and maybe getting some people off the rolls who hadn't been involved in covering the sport for 10 or 15 years. But, you know, I think most writers really take this responsibility to heart, really do their best, really put a lot of thought into it. And, you know, the baseball writers do get criticized, but we've seen in the Veterans Committee, you know, they don't let in anybody. (laughs) So, um, you know, how many former players get in through the Veterans Committee? So I think if we had the players vote, you know, I don't know that that would be great. You know, the fans, you can't really have the fans vote, I don't think. Um, you know, can you, could you let in some people, broadcasters and uh, people like, uh, you know, Bill James or Rob Nyer or, you know, uh, different people who maybe aren't writers who, uh, uh, you know, might be um, uh statistically oriented or, or some broadcasters, you know, Bob Costas, or I don't really have a big problem with that. I, I don't know how much difference it would make if you let in 20 or 30 people like that uh, who aren't necessarily members of the BBWAA and expanded it a little bit. Um, you know, I'm okay with that because I think the more uh, wise and prudent voter, you know, group you have, the better choices you're going to make. But Overall, I think if the writers are guilty of anything, maybe it's that we've had the bar too high and been a little little bit too selective. But I do think that beats the alternative, which is to let in everybody and then say, geez, we have a diluted Hall of Fame and, you know, you can't kick guys out once they're in there. You've been listening to Jerry Krasnick. You can give him a follow on Twitter at jkrasnick and read his columns at ESPN.com. Jerry, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Ross.